0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
1: Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your
0: host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in to AOA. It is Wednesday, April 20th. We are continuing to keep an eye on everything that is happening here in the world of agriculture, and I'm excited for today's show. We've got a lot happening today in segment two. We're going to speak with Scott Yeager. He recently filed a brief in the Sackett case. This is the challenge to the Waters of the U.S. Act that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear later on this fall. They're now taking comments from interested parties. Scott will give us an update on what they're seeking and as this moves towards the front of the Supreme Court's docket. And in segment three, we're going to check in with Arlen Suderman. We'll talk inflation and we'll take a look at the grain markets. At the end of the show, Greg Solier, Ag Meteorologist and Chief Meteorologist on This Week in Agribusiness, will be joining us. More snow, more cold ahead for some folks tuning in. Greg will have that update for us. Before we jump into all of that, however, we need to talk about the cattle market. This Friday, we are going to get the cattle on feed report and we're going to continue to see that market be moving. To give us some insight on what's happening in the cattle trade, joining me now is Chris Swift of Swift Trading Company. He's down in Nashville, trades cattle all the time. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
2: Mike, I certainly do appreciate the opportunity to be here.
0: Well, let's talk first about this cattle on feed report that's coming on Friday. Chris, are there any surprises you are going to be watching out for?
2: Um, A little bit. We noticed that the the trade guess for the placement numbers at 92%. We thought that with more cattle having come off the uh, wheat pasture, that might have improved just a little bit. But still, having seen what we saw in April so far, maybe they got caught up in some of those marketings in April. So I think although that we will see a, a fairly lower placement number, the month of April may take up some of that slack that we see.
0: That makes sense. Chris, on the marketings number, what are you anticipating?
2: Um, Right in line with about 98 percent. What we're seeing is we are producing equally if not a little bit more beef this year on a slightly lower slaughter level. So we know that carcass weights have been anywhere from 15 to 19 pounds higher year over year and so we've had to kill fewer cattle in there. That's the lower marketing but yet we're still producing the same amount if not a little bit more beef.
0: Well, Chris, I think that opens up the next question. As we look at the cattle feeder out here facing these astronomical costs of gain, do you anticipate that that carcass weight is going to work its way lower over the summer?
2: You know, probably not, and for the biggest reason is genetics. Um, from what I understand, the genetics of cattle have improved such that they have, the carcass weights have actually stepped up a few pounds. So if we do come back, the likelihood of going back to the lower weights is not very good. And as we move forward and we see who becomes the major distributor of beef, they get to make the rules of how big they want the cattle. And right now we're seeing the large blockchain stores of Costco's, Walmart's, and Sam's Clubs. They are directing a lot of that beef production because they're the main distributor up. So they will tell the packer, excuse me, they'll tell the feed yard what size they want the animals so they'll know what cuts that they can get off of them. And I believe that's kind of the way the industry is going, is being more directed by whomever the major beef uh, marketers are.
0: Well, and that that sets up a challenge, Chris, of course, if you've got the retailer looking at what's going to sell to consumers, and then you've got the cattle feeder trying to have this make sense on their feedlot, those two signals don't always cross correctly. What in terms of cost of gain, Chris, what are you hearing out there in the countryside at feedlots?
2: Anywhere from a dollar thirty to a dollar fifty a pound is, is what we're looking at, and, and that is really expensive. And and we wonder we can quick, quickly put pencil to paper and see that at today's corn price, today's feeder cattle price, and five months from now, fat cattle price still aren't very profitable. So there has to be something in there that that says the cattle feeder is still able to bid higher for this. And I believe where we have become in the industry is a division between those within vertical integration and those outside of vertical integration. Those within being more privy to the price of beef, they can pay the higher price for the feeder cattle, as well as recall, we have now major distributors out there that are controlling a lot of the way the beef movement is, so with them um, having a control over it, they're gonna naturally be buying more cattle, more beef, and distributing through there. Those outside of vertical integration, the only thing they can do is just hope that there's some kind of break in the input cost or there is some significant rally in the fat cattle market.
0: Well, I hear from a lot of ranchers, Chris, and they're not getting a break in the input costs. Hay costs continue to climb. Obviously, grain costs are climbing up. As you think about the overall beef herd here in this country, between the drought and these high costs, do you expect liquidation throughout the year?
2: Well, yes, I do, because liquidation has been heavy for the last 12 months. Uh, we've noted an elevated cow slaughter. We've noted an elevated uh, heifer placement. And this uh, month's uh, on feed report will be a quarterly one, so note that it will have that heifer placement information on there. So it'll be interesting to see if it's continued at 2 3%, what we have been seeing over the last several quarters. If that is the case, we are still in liquidation. And until it rains into the northwest there, there's really no chance of any kind of expansion at all
0: no there there just isn't that's the story i continue to hear from producers all across the plains chris for folks who are looking at getting feeder cattle marketed those those calves there at six eight weights how should they be approaching that here this year
2: well Really, those cattle seem to be in very high demand. Um, anything that, that can go back out on grass where there is grass in the more eastern portions there, that, those are still hot and heavy. And we do believe that there are fewer animals because of the liquidation that has taken place over the last couple of years. There's clearly fewer animals out there to have to deal with. But if we think about beef production, we think about how society consumes beef and, and the amount that they do, Then we go into the production side of it and we tell ourselves that we're losing land, we're losing water rights, and we're losing the producer at an extremely fast rate, it will be literally impossible to re-expand that herd back out to previous levels of what we saw in 2017 and 2018
0: and that would imply price increases right chris for the cattle producer but then i wonder about the influx of brazilian beef you continue to see that weighing on retail prices here as the year goes on
2: absolutely it does with china uh having blocked the brazilian beef and we have a quota and i'm, I'm almost i'm not for sure but i'm pretty sure that they've already exceeded that quota with our dollar being so strong it behooves us, in, in all honesty, to buy as much of that product as we can bringing it in here because it's so cheap. And, and we know that we want the U.S. cattlemen out there to have the lion's share of the market, and then we worry about the consumer, so there has to be a balance in there somewhere or another because clearly U.S. beef is very, very expensive, and Brazilian beef is very, very inexpensive.
0: That's true. We do produce high quality beef here in this country. Chris, if listeners want to keep up to date with your thoughts on the cattle market, do you have a place you can send them?
2: Absolutely. It's uh Swift Trading Company or shootin'thebull.com and we put out commentaries twice a day every day.
0: Fantastic folks. Check that out. Chris Swift, Cattle Market In Expert. Chris, really appreciate you joining us today.
2: Thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: And folks, stick around. When we return, we will talk the Sackett-Wodas case that will be going before the Supreme Court here later on this year. Stay with us on AOA. <music> Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel diesel that doesn't mess around.
3: Smart stays on the road. That's why it's in your engine. Because you wouldn't settle for subpar performance. Senex Max Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils give you the smartest oil for the toughest conditions. These premium oils maintain 80% of their viscosity throughout the drain interval for superior engine performance across extreme temperatures. That horizon looks good with the competition behind you. Senex Maxtron Diesel Engine Oils. Oil that runs smart.
4: On road or off road, you'll find the FS lubricant you need from our full line of premium quality products. At FS, our lubricants use the highest quality base oils and latest additive technology to meet and exceed most manufacturer's specifications. Advanced protection against wear ensures you'll get maximum value from both your lubricant and equipment investments. Squeeze every bit of performance out of every piece of equipment you own. Let the FS Energy Specialists help you go further. Go further with FS. Visit gofurtherwithfs.com for more
5: information.
6: Get it, slip it, cuff it, check it. Talk to the doctor now and share
5: it. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it twice a day.
4: I get it, slip it, cuff it,
3: check it in the morning and before dinner.
5: I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it, and share it with my doctor. Nearly one in two U.S. adults have high blood pressure. That's why it's important to self-monitor your blood pressure in four easy-to-remember steps. It starts with a monitor.
3: Now that I know my blood pressure numbers, I talked with my doctor. We're getting those numbers down.
5: Get it, slip it, it
6: check it. Talk to doctor now and share it.
5: Be next to talk to your doctor about your blood pressure numbers. Get down with your blood pressure. Self-monitoring is power. Learn more at manageyourbp.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the American Heart Association, and the American Medical Association. In partnership with the Office of Minority Health and Health Resources and Services Administration.
0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart.
1: Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson.
0: Well, thanks so much for tuning in today, ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking for the past, goodness, seems like eight years here in the world of agriculture about the waters of the US, the WOTUS Act, the component of the Clean Water Act legislation, and that has been A battle for the ag industry and environmental groups and construction groups and everybody. And earlier this year, it was announced that a case challenging the current expectations of Waters of the U.S. has been accepted by the Supreme Court. And those arguments will be heard later on this year. Before they get to the arguments, though, the Supreme Court opens the door for insights and briefs from folks who could be affected by the law. And one such group is the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Scott Yeager, their chief environmental counsel, joins me today. Hey, Scott, thank you, for, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the time. As this case, the Sackett case heads before the Supreme Court, I understand the Supreme Court is really being asked a simple question, and that's did the Ninth Circuit set forth the proper test for determining whether wetlands are waters of the United States under the
7: Clean Water Act?
0: Scott, to that question, what is NCBA's answer?
7: There's there's an answer that we provided in our amicus brief to the Supreme Court, which tries to marry the various tests, of which there are many on WOTUS, but also provide some really clear guidance for farmers and ranchers. And by clear, I mean we want to have a definition that is not only limited and uh, you know respects state authority on oversight of waters, but also gives... Landowners a way to visually identify whether or not they've got one of these lotuses on their property, and that is so important because if you look at this issue and you mentioned we've been looking at this for eight years or even you go farther back to the first Supreme Court case on this issue in 1986, this issue is complicated. And we need to have a simple solution that says this is a federal water and this is not. And we need to have that test crafted in a way that allows a cattle producer, a farmer, a rancher, a landowner to go out onto their property and visually identify with the naked eye whether or not they've got one of these. And because this issue has gotten so complicated over the years, we've lost that. It's just become this. This conglomerate of different legal tests and regulatory standards and LIDAR and desktop tools, and we've lost the essence of this issue, and it's become so complicated that it's gotten away from that. So we're trying to bring it back to a simple test that a landowner can enact on their property and without having to go to the Army Corps or without having to go to the EPA to ask for permission. Right. It
0: certainly slows things down if you need some sort of environmental engineer's approval before you can move any dirt or or get the things done on your land. Scott, with regard to the two tests that NCBA would like to see the court marry together, we've got relative performance as one test, and then we've got the significant nexus as the other test. Could you talk through the relative performance
7: and, and how you'd like to see these two combined? Yep. So these two tests are what the Supreme Court issued in their 2006 Rapanos decision, which was the last time the Supreme Court looked at this issue. So Scalia and the plurality came came up with this relative permanence test. And then you had former Justice Kennedy, who came up with this significant nexus test. And I can really get into the legalese, but I'm going to try to keep it at a high level Both of these tests attempt to figure out and strike a balance as to where the federal government's jurisdiction ends over navigable waters and where the state authority begins. Um, So our test, NCBA's test, tries to marry those two tests together. And and we're saying you need to to meet both tests, federal government, in order to say a water is jurisdictional. And in doing so, you need to make sure that uh, there are visual indicators. In other words, things that you can see to identify whether you've got a federal water and also there needs to be enough surface water flowing through that feature that it is meeting the the protections of being a federal water. So that's something that, Over the years when we've had – whether it's the Obama administration or the Trump administration, now the Biden administration is taking a bite at this apple. Uh, They've gotten pieces of that, but not all of it together, and we're bringing it all together, and we're saying you can probably craft a pretty good definition of lotus if you include all of these important parts. And the federal government has to satisfy all of them in order to find a water jurisdictional.
0: All right. Scott, so if the Supreme Court, uh, as they're making this uh, deciding this case, they're going to hear all of these ideas, will they at the end of this decision process, let's say their their ruling comes out, and it's in line with NCBA, would you expect to see the US Supreme Court define these tests to the EPA? Or will they likely say, we need these components, EPA, go build a test that fits these parameters?
7: So that's a great question, and I think when it comes down to it, there is a division between these – there's a separation of powers between the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. The Supreme Court does not want to write regulations. It's not their roles, and they will not step into the role of being the expert agency, as EPA and the Army Corps are. But what our test does – so if they adopt our test, basically they're they're taking it a step further, uh, and they're they're creating a framework – that, the, that would effectively tie the hands of the EPA and the Army Corps in a way where, yes, the EPA and the Army Corps would have to craft a subsequent regulation to implement that new test, but it would do so in a way where they're, they're pretty bound to what the Supreme Court would say if they adopt our test. Um, so they would have to fill in some specifics, but by and large, the building blocks of a new definition would be dictated from the Supreme Court down to those agencies. So we think it does a good job of giving the agencies uh, some very specific uh, direction, but leaving, the, uh, leaving the, the very granular specifics, the stuff that has to be done by those expert agencies in place uh, with the executive branch to, to fill out. So we try to strike a balance there is the way to answer that. I'm trying to answer the question because the, 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 the Supreme Court does not want to step overstep into the role of being the executive branch. So the way we crafted our test is it puts some pretty strong uh, handcuffs uh on the agencies but also leaves a little bit of space for them to uh figure out how to implement that test
0: okay scott as we think about these tests uh, the one you mentioned anthony kennedy's significant nexus test that has really been the focus of the complaints i've heard from the the farmers and the landowners out there in the countryside of his test the significant nexus test what aspects of that would you like to see maintained
7: so the way that we look at significant nexus is. There is. You need. What Kennedy was trying to get at is is trying to say that if you've got a a wetland that is significantly uh, affecting a nearby navigable water to the point where it's almost the same feature because they're sharing the same water, they're sharing the same ecosystem. There, there is a physiological and ecological effect on that navigable water. They're, they're basically the same water. They're inseparably bound up. Um, that's what Kennedy was trying to get after, these features that are, these wetlands that are basically one in the same with a navigable water. Uh, so our test retains that aspect of it uh, by trying to codify that to do, to show that you've got one of these waters, there needs to be specific visual indicators to prove it. Uh, and then on the other side of that, we're, we're baking in uh, Scalia's test by saying there's got to be a requisite amount of actual water flowing in that in that feature. That's something that was lost on the Obama administration rule where they basically were regulating dry features that would barely convey water. Uh, we're, we're, we're fixing that by incorporating that Scalia test for having a requisite amount of water in that feature. So we're, we're trying to bring them both together. Um so I kind of answered your question, and then jumped in added a the Scalia piece in there. But I hope that, that sort of gets at what you're asking there.
0: It does, Scott. And it opens up my next question, which is about those <laughs> ephemeral streams and wetlands that were uh, yeah, really highlighted under the Obama WOTUS rule. Would your test require water flowing year round or would it allow for seasonal changes as long as it
7: hit a volume of water? Yeah, that's a great question, and we didn't go as far in our brief, the Supreme Court to dictate exactly how much. Uh, we're just saying that it needs to have enough to, to mandate the federal protection. So we're kind of leaving some of that to the agency. But I'll tell you in our technical comments to the agencies, we want 180 days of flow per year. That was 180 days is something that our cattle producers came together and said, this is enough to justify it being a federally protected water. So if you think about 180 days, that's half of a year. That's spring and summer water flowing through that. So two seasons of flow. Um, We think that strikes a balance between protecting water features that are are there and you can see and are flowing for half the year, uh, um, and then leaving the rest to to the state and localities. Um, So if we were to go with that, those dry washes out in the air at Southwest, those features that are ephemeral, Uh, They would they would not they would necessarily not be under federal jurisdiction Would be left to the states and localities to determine how best to use their resources to protect what they need. All right.
0: Lots to keep track on here as this issue moves forward in front of the Supreme Court. Big thanks to Scott Yeager, Chief Environmental Counsel of NCBA. Scott, thanks for joining us today.
7: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: And folks, stick around when AOA returns. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodity Economist with Stonex, will be joining the show, and we're going to talk about the grain market. Stay with us here on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
3: Experts agree using multiple herbicides with alternate modes of action increases your chances of beating resistant weeds. Tough 5EC is a selective contact herbicide for post-emergence control of broadleaf weeds, especially herbicide resistant strains. Tough 5EC has a synergistic effect with HPPD inhibitors and enhances atrazine with fast results. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit belchiumusa.com. Always read and follow label instructions. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. While we take a look at the grain trade, we see mixed action as we work into our morning. Commodity prices found some support again overnight as fund money continued to flow into the ag sector and intermittently into the energy sector. The food-based commodities have been very attractive to fund managers, seeking a way to hedge their portfolios against inflation because they are considered essential and in relatively tight supply in the world. Many of these commodity markets benefited from tight supplies prior to the Ukraine war, but the Russian evasion of Ukraine amplified the problem further. Add in weather and logistical challenges, and you have the makings of a quote-unquote perfect storm, tight supplies, and an abundance of money wanting to trade those fundamentals. Dryness continues to spread across Brazil's northern Safrida corn belt, ushering in an early end to the monsoon season the crop depends on for its production. And we're not expecting major crop failure, but the drier conditions are expected to take some of the top off the crop. At a cool wet start to the spring, creating challenges here in the U.S. as the uh, outlook here ahead not looking too great in the short term. Could get some pockets, though, as we get into the month of May. Overall, the market's, So taking a bit of a breather here this morning with wheat turning down double digits now. Maybe a little bit of profit taking after we saw the overnight moves here to the upside. Right now, May Chicago wheat down 31 and a quarter, 1067 to three quarters. May Kansas City wheat down 27, 1144 and a half. May spring wheat down 19 to three quarters, 1149 and a half. May corn down five and three quarters, 798 and a quarter. December down 10 and a quarter, 736 to three quarters. May beans up three and a half, 1720. November down nine to three quarters, 1510 and three quarters. Cattle are higher. April live cattle up a dollar, 142.35. April feeder cattle up 112, 157. 77, with hogs slightly lower in front months. Crude oil up 31 cents at 102.87. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen.
6: What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death.
0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart.
1: Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson.
0: Well, folks, thank you for tuning in to AOA today. We are taking a look at the markets here for segment three. We've got the grains down slightly, oilseeds, soybeans, especially finding a little bit of strength to help give us some insight into what is happening in this ever-changing world of commodities. We're joined now by Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with Stonex. Arlen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
1: Yeah, the title's a tongue twister, isn't it?
0: I think I just need more coffee. Arlen, I want to ask you first here about this wheat market. We're seeing a sell-off today, but my goodness, we spoke with Mike Schulte of the Oklahoma Wheat Commission on the show yesterday, and it does not look good out there for wheat, winter wheat here domestically. What's going on in the wheat world?
1: No, it really doesn't, and and this market's trying to get a grasp on what only the domestic situation is, but the global situation is. And we know that we have some problems with the winter wheat crop. The the ratings that came out this week, again, were once again uh, the lowest on record. The records go back 35 years that USDA has been uh, posting condition ratings. I'm talking about for this time of year, and so we've never had a crop – produce a normal crop with ratings this low in mid-April so we know it's gonna be a small crop we could assume from history we just don't know how small yet that's gonna depend on how things play out in the weeks ahead with the weather just how far how much stress do we put on this crop so how come the markets are not responding well let's remember that we're trading prices that are between eleven and twelve dollars per bushel so much of this is already factored into the market we know that global supplies are very tight much of that's been priced into the market. The question is, is the tightness situation worse than what's already been priced into the market? And we really don't have a handle on that at this point. The potential is there for going higher, um, but we need to see how things play out. And a lot of that's going to hinge probably on USDA's May 12th production estimate which uh, surveyors are going to be walking the fields here in about ten days determining their production estimates now the crop is very delayed in maturity this year because of the type of spring that we've had and so in many of those fields where the heads are not out yet they'll simply be counting tillers and assuming normal heads on those tillers and probably overestimating tillers as well. So this may be the highest production estimate we see on May 12th, although I think it'll still be uh, show a subnormal crop uh, and then probably be a story of small crops getting smaller in the months that follow. And, and I trust the market respond. In the meantime, though, we basically are, have priced wheat out of the uh, export market, except for those export customers who are close enough to have a freight advantage. So our exports aren't overly impressive. And that really is something that the funds take a lot of look at, is those export numbers, and they build their expectations on that. But it'll work out in the end, I think, to reflect the problems that we have.
0: Arlen, with these price levels in wheat we're priced out of the export market, are we also pricing wheat out of the feed market?
1: Yeah, we're really doing that, and I think that's something that the feed market is largely overlooked, that uh, we're not just doing it domestically, but we're doing it globally, which means increased demand for corn. And corn supplies are already very tight, not just in the world more so than here domestically so we think the world's going to be depending on us more in the year ahead for those corn supplies and uh, so that's just one of the more factor why we have corn trading above eight dollars a bushel uh, as we talk
0: Arlen, as you think about the tightness in global supplies, plus the inflationary pressures that are coming from from global economies and from governments around the world, are we continuing to see managed money that fund money flow into ag commodities as a hedge against inflation?
1: very much so. Um, If you're a manager of a big investment fund, your biggest worry is that your customers' funds that they've entrusted to you will see an erosion in value because of high inflation, and then they'll be upset with you. So you want to invest in those assets that are going to go up with inflation, and that tends to be the commodity sector. And they don't just broadly look at the commodity sector, they look specifically at which commodities have been moving the most correlating the best with inflation and have a fundamental story behind them and right now the food-based commodities the agricultural food-based commodities are the ones that most attractive so we've seen a lot of that money coming into these markets and we know from history when that happens that the market tends to manage supply and demand at a higher price level than what it otherwise would again that's another reason why we're seeing prices at current levels but as we've seen you know we talked about today we're seeing more red on the screen prices are lower Um, and we will have times of sharp breaks or profit-taking or whatever in these markets because of the computers that drive many of these trades, trading momentum signals. But in the end, the breaks are being bought, and we continue the longer-term trend higher with these markets, and especially corn has been putting in new contract highs uh, in recent days. That's been more the focus of late is corn market.
0: Well, let's dive into that corn market in a little more detail, Arlen. It sounded like as I was speaking to end users here two or three weeks ago, they were breathing a sigh of relief that the Brazilian second Safrina crop corn was going to be looking pretty good. I understand we spoke to John Baranek on Monday's show and it sounds like the weather might be shifting down there in Brazil. Arlen, has Stonex updated their yield expectations?
1: Yeah, we update our yield expectations uh, based on a customer survey on the first of each month. So we'll do so again. Let's see, the first comes on a Sunday in May, so we'll do so on Monday the 2nd. Um, Our April 1st production estimate we increased the size of the crop a couple of million metric tons and USDA their April 1st estimate went up 3 million metric tons per month and that was largely because on April 1st the crop looked quite good again the safrina crop or the second corn crop that they grow in the winter in Brazil um, that's their biggest crop where most of their exportable supplies come from its three-fourths of their overall total production But the last few days in March, the weather pattern changed, and northern the northern half of the belt started to dry out, and we've seen this persist throughout um, the time since then. Um, And so it doesn't mean there's been no rain, but there's been just light scattered showers here and there since then, since the last few days of March. And their soils aren't as forgiving as what the soils here in the Midwest are, so they can't afford as much dryness as what we could here in the Midwest. And so we've started to see some stress start to mount on their corn crop. It's been going through the pollination and early grain fields. That's a critical stage of development for the crop. And if you look at the weather forecast into early May right now, this pattern is expected to continue. And once we get to May, the monsoon rains have generally shut off anyway, so normal precipitation in May is very low anyway. So basically, we have seen an end to the rainy season in the northern half of Brazil, Safrina Corn area. We do not expect it to be a crop disaster like what we had last year, but we do expect this to end up taking some of the top off the crop in a year when there's just very little, if any, margin for error um, because of tight global supplies of corn, especially with Ukraine being out of the mix this year.
0: Ukraine's out of the mix and Ireland domestically here in the North America we are looking at a cold wet spring so far this year as these planting delays might start to accelerate which commodity do you think could see the biggest price spike on a delayed planting
1: well I think from a fundamental standpoint the crop that I'm currently most concerned about is spring wheat in the northern plains going up in the Canadian prairies um, because there's some attractive alternative uh, specialty crops that could certainly uh, get to grab those acres, particularly in some of the oil seeds we could see grab some acres as well. Uh, If those rains and cool weather, they're supposed to get another snowstorm up in the northern plains here coming up in the days ahead as well. And if we see this pattern continue a few more weeks, then we could start seeing a loss of spring wheat acreage. As for corn and soybeans, yes, we're delayed. Yes, there are concerns. There's reasons to be concerned. I've been monitoring these uh, planting seasons now for over four decades, and I've seen my share of scares, and we almost always get the crop planted. The most recent time when we didn't, and we had problems, was 2019, and we ended up with a good crop overall, but that was because we followed up a late planting with an almost perfect growing season and a late frost, Uh, and you're probably not going to get that combination very often, but right now as I look at the weather forecasters that I trust, it looks like we may see a change in the pattern sometime between the 5th and the 10th of May for the Midwest, which would give ample time for the crop to go in. Maybe not as early as what we like, so it may take off the opportunity for some of the high yields for corn and soybeans in the Midwest, um, but still get the crop planted. In the end, what's going to matter most is what's July and August weather going to be like in the Midwest. That's where I have more concerns Because with La Nina lingering now and even showing some signs of strengthening and expected to linger now through the summer growing season, we're seeing more forecasts start to shift dry for the Midwest in that July, August, September time period, which is so critical for production. And so the risks are going up for the Midwest crops for the summer.
0: They certainly are. Arlen, do you expect to see Chinese purchase more U.S. soybeans here over the next two or three months?
1: I do. Uh, They've been stepping it up. And if you look right now, for, for May loadings of soybeans, we're very competitive with Brazilian supplies right now. And for June, July, and August, we have a price advantage. So I don't expect Brazil to be totally done shipping soybeans. I expect them to continue. But along with that, we're going to see higher than normal U.S. soybean shipments, in my opinion. And I think we're going to see a strong Contra-seasonal export season is going to force USDA to raise its export targets and more, lowering its ending stocks. And I think we may even see those ending stocks for the current year drop below 200 million bushels.
0: All right. Arlen, we got to cut it there, folks. Stay with us here on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
5: Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle.
7: I like that too.
5: Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You are not your diagnosis.
4: A medical chart is not your identity.
5: And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage.
4: An advocate for hope.
5: You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding.
4: We're fighting macular degeneration.
5: Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome
8: One of the higher risk aspects of farming is crop protection application. With label changes, regulations, equipment maintenance and drift management, it's a lot of risk. And a great way to manage it is to rely on your local FS and FS crop applicators. They constantly train to keep up with the latest label changes, regulations and best practices. So your crop is protected and risks reduced. Contact your local FS to learn more about our custom application programs. It's one more way FS is bringing you what's next.
3: soil the final frontier these are the voyages of the soil ship enterprise to explore soil life to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before farmers log soil date 31655.4 We've come across some strange, but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. Guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. (laughs) Ahem. Fleet, you know. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of
8: soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station.
1: To be the king of the road, you have to fill with the king of diesels. We're talking about Senex Premium Diesel. It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Senex Roadmaster XL even cleans up and prevents injector fouling to keep your trucks out of the shop and on the road. And typical number two diesel, that's always an option. The wrong option. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't
2: mess around.
8: Mike Rowe here with a gentle reminder that civilization is held together by pipes, wires, and cables. It's true. There are over 5 million miles of gas lines, power lines, fiber optic lines, water lines, and sewer lines all buried beneath your feet. And every 60 seconds, somebody digs into one. Look, if you're thinking about digging around, do yourself a favor and call 811 first just to find out what's down there. Trust me, you don't want to find out the hard way. Call or click 811 before you dig and visit safeexcavator.com for more info.
0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
1: Keeping America's farmers and
4: ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson
0: for tuning in to AOA today. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking a lot about what to expect weather wise as we head into spring, this cold, dry weather across the northern Corn Belt, that wet weather across the eastern Corn Belt, and of course, the ongoing drought farther west, north and south. It seems like every single person in this country is confronting challenges with weather to give us an outlook on what to expect looking forward. Joining me now is Greg Soulier, meteorologist of this week in agribusiness. Greg, thank you. Thank you so much for talking to us today
8: well thank you mike nice to be with you as always here in this fine group of radio stations
0: well greg i tell you what last week we had quite a conversation about the blizzard that was heading for north dakota they've now been able to get themselves mostly dug out in a lot of those areas but i understand there's another storm headed their way what's aiming at the northern plains this week
8: well i tell you it's a really pick your poison on what's been going on not only the short term but as we advance on through friday and into the weekend yeah headlines uh, there would be yet another winter storm expected to wind its way, organize and develop out across the four corners, either Mountain West, and make its way sweep northeastward uh, slowly, I should say, uh, over the course of uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, back up to Hudson Bay and James Bay, and I tell you already, today uh, a variety of weather going on from snow still coming on down uh, from Alexandria, Minnesota, the Arrowhead Thunder Bay, back up to around the uh, Sioux Lookout area and east of Winnipeg to uh, high wind and the very brittle and dry conditions from the Black Hills on southward into through Nebraska, where there's a high and elevated and critical fire risk for the day-to-day. Those folks, by the way, have a couple of days' worth of a reprieve from uh, the snow and the ice and the cold. They're going to be in the 60s and 70s today. Meanwhile, again, you don't have to go too far to the north and northeast of the Red River to come up with uh, snow. Uh, this morning, but yeah, the headline stories are, are that uh, another windblown affair with high fire risk over New Mexico, West Texas, severe weather expected over the second half of the week where they've had some rain and some localized drought relief, and it's almost gotten to be too much of a good thing over the southeastern plains areas of Oklahoma, the of the Tennessee Valley, and uh, yeah, cool to cold wet soils over many areas of the Corn Belt. Uh, earlier on this week, I believe it was Monday, uh, had reports of about 4-5% or 5% of the corn in the ground in Nebraska. No beans planted anywhere. Uh, and uh, about a 1-2% or 2% planting pace on the corn side of things through Missouri, where they are very much wet. And many remainder areas of the Corn Belt, especially from the Mississippi Valley on eastward. So, yeah, within earshot of your favorite radio station here, uh, you know, there's stuff going on from the ongoing snow, the winter storm watches are back up over western North Dakota, and Big country and so livestock managers these widespread and very these volatile temperatures and the weather is going to keep you guys and men and barn operators on their toes here for the foreseeable future
0: it certainly is Greg watching the pictures on social media of those ranchers up there digging out cattle from snowbanks 12 10 foot high drifts of snow it was certainly something to see Greg that was a lot of snow that came down I've heard reports it was heavy wet snow there across western North Dakota parts of Montana as it melts would this be enough moisture content to do anything with regard to alleviating drought.
8: Yeah, that's, that's that's at least the positive side of things here, and, and I know we're gonna. There's probably already a, a fair amount of angst coming off the recent storm. The new one to come in, which will have the same wet packing variety, generally focus itself over eastern Montana, uh, maybe northwestern North Dakota, north of the Black Black Hills, on Northward, let's just say, and across the upper mid uh, Upper Missouri Valley portions of North Dakota, northeast from there yeah another foot maybe foot and a half and 50 plus mile an hour winds but yeah there is some positive news that we're getting some absorption some percolation some softening of the frost layer and so there should be a propensity to get that to melt on in we've already seen some modest improvement either side of the red river valley and then southward into the uh, missouri valley portions of eastern nebraska and western iowa over the past uh, several weeks so Good news there, and hopefully the snow will have some good news associated. The problem is we're going to transition when we get out of this uh, snow pattern into a wet pattern, so there will be additional drought relief, but I think we're going to go from one direction to the other. There's a specter of maybe some flooding issues, particularly through Minnesota. The upper lakes region begin to play out as we get deeper on into the month of May and June, the key planting uh, season across parts of the Dakotas, Minnesota, and Wisconsin.
0: Well, Greg, I tell you what—I bet a lot of listeners up north are perked up their ears with the idea of transitioning to a wetter period. How widespread of an area do you anticipate this uh, extra moisture to be falling in?
8: I would think, you know, kind of either side of the Missouri River as it extends up through North Dakota, and then more so into the the least uh, southern portions of the Red River Valley of the North, and then from there east and southeast uh, to include Wisconsin, Michigan, and across much of the eastern corn Belt, where we've already been peddling the past. A uh, few uh, television shows in the past couple of months that it will be a wet and character-building uh, planting season there. And, again, significant drought relief, and there may be some pockets of too much of a good thing in the upper Midwest, northern Great Lakes region. I think we'll stay even-keeled generally through Iowa. Uh, maybe a little wetter as you get into the I-70 corridor of Missouri. And I think uh, still, despite some localized improvement, you know, you get past April into May in this kind of Mediterranean, central and southern plain states climate, as in we pop thunderstorms, it's all or nothing. You don't get real organized moisture until maybe you get into the monsoon season over the high plains areas of uh, Colorado and New Mexico, Kansas, West Texas, and uh, Oklahoma, or tropical system comes in late in the summertime season. So I think that corridor, that west of the Missouri Nebraska and southward is going to still remain a very key drought-ridden area of the country. Southwestern states as well. The only other improvement we've seen is in northern California and along the west of the Cascades, the next weather system there, and another one due in uh, for weeks' end. So, yeah, there, there should be general improvement in some of these spring grain and sugar beet areas maybe getting to be too much of a good thing considering the degree of snow that we're going to have snow melt then we transition to wetter but at least it's going to be some drought relief and again uh, the farther east and southeast to go out of the great lakes region more problematic it becomes deeper on into the spring and early summertime season
0: and so greg you anticipate that wetness in the eastern corn belt to be with us for the next six eight weeks
8: uh, exactly, yeah, and especially focused in the eastern Corn Belt areas and probably going to take its sweet time. There may be some replanting and character-building issues even further through uh, parts of Wisconsin, Michigan, northern and eastern Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. I think that will be the focus of too much of a good thing there and still not enough as you get west into Missouri and through uh, Nebraska and Kansas City.
0: All right, folks, well, you can hear Greg's thoughts on weather every weekend on This Week in Agribusiness. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today.
8: Thank you, my friend. Have a great day.
0: And, folks, do be sure to tune in tomorrow. We're going to be speaking with Ed Elfman of the American Bankers Association about some of the policies coming that could impact ag finance. And we're also going to check in with Iowa Senator Charles Grassley about what's happening in Washington. Tune in on Thursday to AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
4: Okay, gotta be late. Gotta go, gotta go. Where'd I put... Ah! Wallet. Check. And... oh, phone. Uh, check. Keys. Check. Lunch.
8: Check. Checking for the things you need doesn't take long. But what about checking for your safety? Right now, one in every five vehicles on the road has an open safety recall. But it only takes seconds to check for open recalls on your car at checktoprotect.org. All you need is your vehicle identification number or license plate number. Your automaker may not have the right information to notify you about recalls by mail, especially if you recently moved or drive an older or used car. ChecktoProtect.org is the quick easy way to find out if your vehicle has an open safety recall and find the closest dealer who can make the repair for free.
4: Oh oh, oh. laptop. <laughs> Check.
8: Before you go, take a minute. Visit ChecktoProtect.org. Check to protect is a program of the National Safety Council.